Maybe something like this has happened in your household a time or two. I remember a time a couple of years ago when I was making pancakes on a Saturday morning for my kids. And we began having some patience and waiting issues. Um, they were really hungry because watching Saturday morning cartoons is hard work, you know? It is. And it builds up an appetite and the pancakes smelled great, if I do say so myself. However, in our household, we don't just go straight off the griddle onto your plate. I don't, know if you're, I don't know if you're like this. I mean, you may be in a household where it comes just straight off the griddle onto the plate, just like as soon as we, like, no, we, 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 use, we use the towel over the plate and the microwave as a safe haven, right, to keep the heat in. And we wait until we've got enough to serve everybody. And then we dish out the goodness, Okay, and so we were having some issues waiting, um, and and they they have to they have to wait with this beautiful aroma floating through the air. Did I mention I make amazing pancakes? All right. Anyway, somewhere in that time of waiting, there starts to be this squabbling from like a, an argument um, about who's going to get the first pancake. And with the low blood sugar, it really starts escalating from, like, a silly argument to something that is quickly getting out of hand. And I don't know if, like, blows are coming very soon, but I need to step in and do something fatherly. So I do. I, I, uh, I put on my fatherly wisdom face. Looks like this. We're going to have a life talk now. And I get down in the middle of them and I say, you know, kids, think about what Jesus would do right now. If Jesus were having breakfast with us right now, I bet he would tell his brother or sister that he would be willing to let them have the first pancake because he loves them. And I think we should do the same thing. And they're all nodding their heads. And I'm like, yes! Win! Father, win! Okay, good job. And I think I'm doing a pretty good job as a dispenser of spiritual truth. And then without skipping a beat, one of my kids turns to the other two and says, okay, you guys get to be Jesus. So much for that idea. Waiting is hard. Waiting is hard. And when you when I ask them why is waiting hard, it just is. It just is. And and while we might be get better as we get older about being able to stand in line for pancakes, there are still things that we agonize over, and there are things that we get frustrated about as we wait. And we wait for trials or struggles to finish. We wait for pain to heal, or at least we wait for pain to become something that we can manage. Whether that be pain of the body, or pain of the mind, or pain of the spirit. We wait for help to come. We wait for purpose to arrive, for providence to arrive, for security to bring us to peace. We wait for the meaninglessness to have meaning. We wait for the confusing to make sense. We hear the kids talk about how hard it is to wait for even a short time for something that we know is good. But what about when the waiting takes your whole life? Or like we said, the lives of your children and your grandchildren and your greats and your great-greats and the three and four greats and even beyond that. How do we deal with that kind of waiting? In our Bibles, when we reach the end of the prophecy of Malachi, we might see a page that says the end of the Old Testament or something like that or, or, or maybe just a blank page and something that just says the New Testament right next to it and we flip that page and we start into Matthew chapter 1 
And I think it's really important to realize that what is a flip of page to us is 10 lifetimes in the history of the world and in the history of the people of Israel. 10 lifetimes, 10 generations of people being born and living and dying, waiting. We've had 40 years in a wilderness, right? We've had one generation. We've had waiting, we've had waiting for a period of years for kings to come. You know, we've had, we've had all kinds of like little bits of waiting, but we've never had waiting quite like this. We've had 70 years in exile, about a generation and a half, but we've never had waiting quite like this in the Bible. And it's funny because there's not anything written about it. Because it's just waiting. It's this time where God is apparently silent. Um, and, and, and Malachi being the last prophet that talks to the people that are the remnant, and we talked about this a little bit last week, um, that, that these last words of God in Malachi 4 um, are written to people that have come out of exile and they're rebuilding and they're, they're going, but, but it's kind of anticlimactic because the same problems still seem to be cropping up. And what are we to do with the fact that the same problems with, uh, with Israel still seem to be cropping up? But these words from Malachi 4 are kind of the last real prophecy, the last revelatory words of God for people to go by that they have to go on. And these last words of God seem to be this. My day is coming soon. And it will be ruin for the conqueror and it will be joy for the oppressed. So get ready, be watchful, and wait for that day. And you almost get the feeling that this day of the Lord that's been talked about as early as the prophet Amos 400 years before this is just around the corner. Like it's going to happen any day now. And a whole generation lives their life waiting and not seeing. And then another generation does the same. And then another generation and another. And so on and so forth. What kind of effect does that kind of waiting have on a community? And what might we learn from that time in between the Old and the New Testament? Because I think it's a significant time that we often overlook. What can the silence of Scripture teach us about how to live in the voice of the Scripture? There's a lot that happens in those 400 years between the Old and the New Testaments, by the way. Okay? We have Jewish historians, people like Josephus and others, that chronicle the history of Israel after the return of the remnant from the exile. And it is a very not smooth journey between Malachi and Matthew when the stirrings of the Messiah and the Gospels. Judah returns from exile. They don't return as shepherds and farmers and the people they were. They, they return primarily as merchants, as traders. They return as a different kind of people than they used to be. The, ex, the remnants of the exile are different than they used to be. And the temple wall and the walls are rebuilt and the priestly cast gets restored from the line of Aaron. And generally there's peace. But again, like we said, Malachi and, and the other prophets of the day, they make it pretty clear that there's already some apathy and some self-centeredness and a lack of honor to God that is eroding the renewal of Israel. And this is in 430 B.C. Now you go like another hundred years and they're in... They're in on their own, but kind of under the Persian Empire, and then Palestine falls to the Greek Empire in 333 B.C. 
the uh, oh, in another hundred years, sorry, they fall to the Greek Empire, and then in 333 BC, part of the Greek Empire gives them over to part of Egypt. The uh, the Ptolemy dynasty of Egypt takes over, under Greek direction, about ten years after that. And so, from a historical perspective, this makes things really good for the Jews. Okay, here's why. They get to adopt many of the Greek customs and cultures, but they're they're basically left alone. They're basically left to do their thing. And they're allowed to spread out over the Greek Empire because, remember, they're merchants and traders. And so you kind of get this natural dispersion where they kind of go where the trade is. Jerusalem's still there, but a lot of people are out. You get the development of these local community gatherings because they're worshiping away from the temple into what's called synagogues, the gatherings. It's real simple, right? Um, And that's where we get this idea of when we see all of a sudden the synagogue being so prevalent in the New Testament. It starts way before then, almost 300 years before. And then all of a sudden, and then now as Greek kind of becomes this language that's spread all over the empire, now you start seeing the Hebrew scriptures get translated into a Greek Old Testament, which becomes known as the Septuagint. And this is the scripture that is quoted by Jesus and the writers of the New Testament. When they say the scriptures say, they are quoting this Greek, Old Testament called the Septuagint that comes into being during this time. And it's a good time of relative peace, but all that changes in 204 BC when a man named Antiochus the Great of Syria, he is given reign over Palestine by the Greek Empire. And he and his son, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, begin a religious purge. I think it's going to be better for the Greek Empire if we can remove all um, all elements of like natural geographical religion and we can just kind of make it like this big you know state Greek philosophical religion okay there have been a lot of movements like this in history and this is just one of them and so they go to remove all the elements of Jewish worship all the elements of the worship of Yahweh from the Jewish state in order to absorb them more fully into the empire And there's this watershed moment, it's in 171 BC, 171 years before Jesus, when Antiochus Epiphanes, in an effort to speed up the death of Judaism, he desecrates the temple. He enters into the Holy of Holies. It's a violation of the priesthood since he's not the high priest, okay? But he doesn't stop there. He takes a pig, an animal that's considered unclean in the teachings of the law, and he slaughters it on the altar as an unauthorized sacrifice. It's about the most in-your-face thing that you could do. It's just wrong, okay? It really is. Like, I mean, even if you don't know anything about, like, just the depth of, of the law and, and everything, it's just wrong. And, and there's a violent response. The house of a man named Judas Maccabeus, he's a descendant of Aaron, they rise up and they lead this really bloody rebellion that wrests control of Jerusalem back and they cleanse the temple in 165 BC. And after that, there's about another hundred years of struggle between the Syrian vassals of the Greek empire and the ruling house of the Maccabees for control of Jerusalem. And it flips back and forth and back and forth for a while. And then the Roman war machine rolls through Palestine and pretty much puts an end to all of it. They settle the matter once and for all. And the great Roman general Pompey walks into the Holy of Holies again in 63 BC and says, I claim this place for Caesar. Even though Caesar's not really around yet, right? I claim it for the Roman Empire, in essence. 
and he declares that Palestine is now a part of the Roman Empire, and in 48 B.C. he's installed a man named Antipater, who is actually a descendant of Esau. He's an Edomite. And they've been waiting for their chance to kind of get back at get back at their younger brother for a long, long, long time, right? And he puts him on the throne as a puppet king. And so Antipater passes the rule on to his two sons. Phasaelus he puts in charge of Galilee and his son Herod. He puts in charge of the rest of Judea. And so now the uneasy sage is set for the star, the manger, the message, and the unexpected arrival of God with us in the person of Jesus. And that's all happening in that time. That's all happening in that little page flip right there. And you're like, okay, that's a good history lesson, but so what? I give it to you so that we can ponder this question. How does the experience of their history affect the Jewish understanding about this passage that we read this morning in Malachi? And the rest of the prophets that speak of this day of the Lord that's coming. How does Israel act in response to all of these years of waiting and silence that come after this? The day is right around the corner. One thing that seems obvious from the beginning is that the day of the Lord Malachi describes becomes so anticipated by Israel as the day that God is going to usher in his reign over all the earth and exalt his chosen people again to their rightful place that they miss the intended target of the warnings that Malachi pronounces. The day of the Lord, Malachi is not warning the rest of the world to get ready for the day of the Lord. He's warning Israel to get ready for the day of the Lord. Why is that? Because it's going to be another watershed moment, bigger than any that they've ever experienced and unlike anything they've ever seen before. And it's going to, it's going to involve both salvation and judgment at the same time. It is something that is going to bring God in all of his fullness right into the middle of the human story. We've been talking about this as we've been going through the story from, from, from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament of how God has had this one direction of drawing near to humanity And this whole idea of the day of the Lord is really, it's going to be the day where I am going to be done drawing near because I will be right in the middle of your story. I could not draw any more nearer than I will be when I come, when my day comes. And what that's going to do is it's going to forever separate justice from injustice, righteousness from wickedness. Malachi makes it really clear that any anticipation about the day of the Lord Any excitement should be also tempered with a bit of apprehension. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Malachi says this, I will send my messenger to prepare the way, and then suddenly the Lord that you seek will come into his temple. The messenger of the covenant, the one whom you desire, will come, says the Lord. And that's great. But I think in this impatience over the waiting... And the dullness that starts to descend over Israel in this 400 years of waiting, it has them focus on that verse in Malachi 3.1 and forget the verse directly after it, verse 2. But who could endure the day of his coming? Who could stand their ground in the face of his presence? For he will be like a refiner's fire. He will be like a launderer's soap. The underlying message is, is that we better be humble And we better be attentive because when that day comes and God is done moving near and God is here in our story, any pretense of righteousness on anybody's part is going to be swept away by the reality of God's holiness and his righteousness. 
There's no way that that's going to stand. Pretensions will not stand in the face of true godliness, right? When God is with us. Malachi's message is really clear. Unless God saves his people when he comes, there's no way that they endure his coming. Unless God chooses to come with salvation, there's no way that they, there's no way that Israel, his own chosen people, that they endure his coming. And so humbly and openly, it would be good to wait patiently for the salvation of the Lord, right? Not just his coming to kick around whoever it is that's currently got you oppressed, whatever empire currently rules. The marvel of the message, though, is that God will save when he comes. If you notice, there's, there's, this, there's this separation. The fire will burn. The refiner's fire will burn. The soap will be ground into the souls of humanity. But the ultimate effect for those who are humble and attentive, it will not be destruction. It will be redemption. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be uncomfortable. But it will be good. Our dog, Sahar, is about five months old now. And she's starting to go through puppy adolescence. I've got, I've got my, uh, my father-in-law and his wife, Dan, and Karen here. And uh, they, have, they have felt the full force of, of the puppy wiggles this week, right? Um, she could be out, we could be out of sight for like 10 minutes. And as soon as we come back, I mean, she's ready to jump gates. She is ready. To, I mean, like, she's just like, oh, I missed you so, you know, it's been forever. And you just, I mean, she's going nuts, this dog, right? And you're like, down, down, be calm. take a sedative, get stop, just, just stop, you know, right? And, and, and she's got all those wiggles and jumps, and it was really cute when she was about this big, but now she's like this big. Okay, and, and she's like doubled in size, and she's going to do it again before she, you know, gets like fully grown, right? She's going to be like 75 pounds before this is all over. And, and uh, so I fully expect to have pictures of Quinn riding the dog later and stuff. But, but so we put her in bed in a crate overnight, and, and, and sometimes we have her there during the day when we're out of the house. And, and again, sometimes when she's been cooped up, we have to kind of clear an alley in the house, so to speak, you know, everybody out of the way, because as soon as that door opens, she is so excited to be free of that crate, she is running laps around the living room furniture, and she's jumping around, and she's rolling on the floor, and she's twisting herself in all kinds of funny shapes, just as she revels in her freedom, right? And I think about the imagery of those who revere God being able to go out and leap like calves released from the stall. That's the kind of image I get, this this unbridled energy, this freedom that's translated into joyful action. What I think is interesting, though, is that for Sahara, it is hard to tell whether she's just excited about being free after being cooped up for so long or whether it's the fact that we're here with her and she's no longer alone anymore. I think it's kind of both. And I think that's really important to how we read this image in Malachi. The image of freedom for the caged and the shackled 
running free and over the ashes of the wicked who did not stand the coming of the Lord. It is a powerfully liberating passage on a social and a political and a justice kind of level. And I think God writes it that way intentionally. But I also think it's important to remember what the righteous are being freed from and what they're being freed into. In the culture, calves were kept cooped up in a stall. They weren't, coop, they weren't kept cooped up in a stall overnight like a dog in a kennel. It wasn't just to put them away for the night. Calves were kept cooped up in a stall for one purpose. It was to fatten them up for the slaughter. So if you imagine a calf being released from a stall to go running in the field, it means that a decision has been made. We're not planning on fattening you up for the slaughter anymore. You've been released from freedom. It is literally a death-to-life move that, uh, that Malachi's talking about here. It is a redemptive move. It's not just the hand of the oppressor or the wicked that they're being released from. It's them being released from their own wickedness and their own oppression of their self-centered life. The freedom from this constant grip of self-idolatry and that day of the Lord is going to purge that from Israel's hearts. And I believe one of the messages that we get out of that is that the day of the Lord that is coming and has now come is purging that from our hearts and that that joy that we experience should be in the fact that God is saving us from ourselves. We're not just freed. We're freed into the tangible nearness of God in our lives. And this is something that Israel begins to neglect in their thinking. Not just about the day of the Lord, but about Messiah in general. By the time Jesus comes, the Messiah concept is so focused, it has become completely socio-political. Nobody is ready for a humble, suffering Messiah who is going to take on the sins of the people and be their salvation. Because the focus has shifted entirely to justice from the outside oppressor, not justice against the oppressor inside of me. My sinful nature, that thing that's barring me from running free in the light in the presence of my Lord and my Master. And one reason Jesus will catch everybody by surprise is he doesn't come to untie the shackles of the political, racial, or social injustice like everybody expects. He expects his church to do that. Instead, he comes and releases his people from the shackles they didn't even realize that they had. He releases them from the shackles that bound their heart away from God, and he throws the door open wide for them to run out and draw near to God, who has taken on flesh to be with them. And I think this is a critical realization for us today, church. When we are in a time of waiting, we are so often seduced into focusing on what is or should be going on outside of us rather than intentionally putting into focus what God is doing inside of us as well. Our anticipation of what is going to eventually end our waiting takes priority over what God desires to do in us during our waiting. Malachi 4.3 uses this curious phrase, on the day that I do these things, and it's also there earlier in chapter 3 verse 17, In the Hebrew there, it literally says, on this day that I am making. Malachi in the Hebrew language understands this to have begun already. 
It's why Jesus uses words like the kingdom that is coming and has now come. It's something that's already happening, even though it's still being formed. It's already happened and is happening. And I think we should understand the same thing about our day, about where we live, in our time of waiting for his appearing and his day that is coming. God's already making that day that's ultimately going to be completed later. And it's both going to happen and already happening in you and I. Think about this. Because that takes all the refining, all the redemption, all the salvation, all that freedom, and it pulls it out of someday and puts it into right here, right now for you and me. Those who fear God and those who hold his name high are already evidences of it happening now. Think about it. There are these people for whom following Jesus is more than bowing the head and saying, your kingdom come, your will be done. Instead, their lives, in their lives, the kingdom is come. The will is already being done. You know them. You see them all the time around you, right? I pray that you are one of those people. To where for you, following Jesus is not about bowing the head and saying, your kingdom come, your will be done someday, O Lord, let it be so, amen. But that you're a person in whom the kingdom is already coming. And the will is already being done. And it's evidence that God is making it, already making a day that's going to be completed. Because he's already starting to work at transforming it and completing it in your life. And not just for your benefit, but for the benefit of all who look at you. And say, where is God? Oh, look, I see him at work right there. Even though we're waiting for him to show himself, he's already showing himself. I think that's the real challenge to you and I as we look at God's last words in the Old Testament. There's this opportunity to live in blessings or curses. It's still there just as it was when God brought it out in Deuteronomy just thousands of years ago. You can live in one or the other. And that choice, the choice that defines which one we live in is ultimately whether our waiting moves us to dullness or to just hurry through the end of our days and get to the end of the waiting or whether in that waiting, in that tension of the apprehension and the anticipation if that makes us stop and get our heads up out of our daily grind and really seek how God is using this time of waiting and wondering or struggling or whatever it is that we're going through to work and change things inside of us right now rather than later. Israel had that opportunity. They didn't use it very well. By the time Messiah came, their understanding of who he should be had grown so anemic they couldn't even recognize him when God took on flesh I don't want to be like that especially when I know that through the Holy Spirit God is taking on flesh every single day in people around me and has the opportunity to do so in me how sad would it be if my in my waiting I had grown so dull in my understanding that when he came and offered me an opportunity I didn't even recognize him pray that that doesn't happen to me and I pray that that doesn't happen to us church it's no surprise then that in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 Jesus is constantly challenging his disciples to watch and be ready and to be prepared for the things that God is going to do ultimately the final coming of his ultimate day 
And likewise, Paul is so concerned about those who follow Christ being attentive so that they can be found blameless on the day of Christ. He puts this idea in letters to five different gatherings of Christians of every type of background, every type of nationality, every type of personality. He says, it is your greatest challenge and joy to not just wait patiently, but to wait fully alive in the waiting. And that's the message to us from Malachi as we anticipate the day of the Lord. Are we just rolling through life waiting for the waiting to be done? Is, is, that what, is that what being a Christian is all about? Is just getting to the end so that we can enjoy the good stuff? Or are we allowing God to display a story that is being continued day by day by day in our lives? Even as we wait for that last page that we already know is is being written and will be finished. Church, I pray that God will give you the blessing of a heart that in struggle is freed, that in wondering is being enlightened, and that especially in the waiting, you might be fully alive and fully moving in his grace right now. And so let's stand together. And let's worship and let's praise the God who is alive and active today and every day all the way to the end, even in our waiting.